0: Mitch McConnell said it out loud. If you just make your the leader of the opposition party less popular by denying him successes and calling him a whatever all the time, his whole party will suffer up and down the ballot. And like that's the road not taken by the Democrats that I can't wrap my head around.
1: The key thing here is that Democrats honestly don't care.
0: Yes. Hey, everyone. Uh, You're listening to a free preview of the Politics Podcast. In this episode, Matt and I will discuss Donald Trump's victory in Iowa, what it means for the GOP and the country going forward, um, with a look ahead to the New Hampshire primary as well. Uh, And then paid subscribers will get to hear Matt grill me about this new report from Jamie Raskin, which proves that Donald Trump took millions of dollars in Payments from foreign governments while he was president, Mm -hmm. um, and why the Democratic Party as an institution just doesn't seem that interested in it. Um, So we hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you like what you're hearing and want to listen to the whole thing, you can become a paid subscriber by visiting politics.fm and signing up. Hello, and welcome to Politics, the podcast. I'm Brian Boytler,
1: I'm Matthew Iglesias.
0: Are we ever going to get tired of that? No, it's just it's a great.
1: It's a great name. We we changed the game. Uh, ten out of ten. We, we totally next. nailed it. Um,
0: the most important um,
1: part of a podcast is having a good name. So
0: indeed, we have um, Okay, well, this week, um, Iowa, more like Iowa. Wow, that was extremely predictable. <laughs> <laughs> you, you promised uh, Donald, not
1: to make me laugh with any jokes. Uh, I know. So
0: Donald. Go ahead.
1: Uh, I mean, outsider businessman Donald Trump uh, triumphed uh, against several better established political figures. uh, It's amazing. Such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. No, I mean, uh, this is really, it's eerie. I mean, just as somebody who's been around politics a long time, it's unusual to have a primary that is like such a nothing. As this, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's just weird. It's, it's hard to like shake the feeling that, like, Iowa caucuses, like, we, we, gotta be, we gotta be covering it on the podcast. But it's like Trump just won by a crushing margin and he's also up in all the other states and the national
0: polls. We are gonna wring some hot takes out of it, um, despite the predictability of it and the fact that there's really very few silver linings here. Um, and uh, we'll talk about the way the press covered. The Iowa caucuses and the way Republicans reacted to it. And I think I think we kind of agree that it strongly suggests that the primary is over or will be over soon. Um, but on the off chance that Nikki Haley manages to win in New Hampshire, uh, Matt and I discussed this uh, before we recorded, and we commit now that if that happens, we are going to shimmy our schedule around um, to record on on Wednesdays instead of Tuesdays so that we can be able to right. cover the aftermath of Tuesday primaries going forward
1: yeah, I mean exactly if if a real race emerges, which it still might I mean you know like i I, I would bet on trump that's my that's my <laughs> hot gambling take, but you know if a real race emerges like we do want to cover it right now we're recording on Tuesdays releasing wednesday mornings we'll shift that around so that we can we can do better coverage and and see what happens um you know i i mean i I was struck I guess by the Iowa you know, the Iowa exit polls, right? It was about two-thirds of Republicans said that they didn't believe Biden had won the election. About two-thirds said it wouldn't make a difference if Trump was convicted of a crime. Um, You know, those are, you know, to an extent, right? Like, those are illustrating general election vulnerabilities of Trump. Two-thirds support from in your own party is, like, not great, actually, on key wedge issue topics. And there's there's an opportunity to pin Republicans down. But it just shows that in a primary, at least, Trump just doesn't have clear vulnerabilities. Right? I mean, in the way that even, I would say, Biden does, like, there are like big public policy issues like like the israel gaza war where you could say like biden has a real weakness with his base there um even though you know he's gonna win too but like trump just like seems bulletproof like republicans really like uh trump and um that's why he's gonna win
0: yeah i mean the the what i find kind of uncanny about the whole thing is that Trump, this time around, from the perspective of a voter, a Republican primary voter, is sort of like the incumbent president, right? They they never really fell out of love with him. He insists he won the 2020 election despite losing, and many of them believe it or at least claim to believe it as part of the, you know, the like <laughs> uh, weird cult-like thing they have going on with him. Um, and so you kind of expect incumbent-like numbers from Trump in primary contests. And if anything, he's like slightly underperforming incumbent status primary election, right? Like, like you said, he's not going to, he's probably doing worse than Joe Biden, who's running essentially unopposed, but does have a primary challenger and he's gonna get a larger share of the Democratic vote than Trump is getting of the Republican vote. The Republican office holders, by contrast, see this as like well they everything they've seen from trump um they see as like uh they're happier with him now than they were before (laughs) he became president um did a whole bunch of terrible things um incited an insurrection got a lot of americans killed from coronavirus and and they are much 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 more like ready to go with donald trump than they were in 2016 even though this time they have a There's like a much simpler way for them to try to push him out because the field is so much less divided in 2024 than it was in 2016.
1: And because his main opposition isn't Ted Cruz, right? I mean, in in, in 2016, even as the field started to narrow, there was this kind of sharp, division between Cruz, who like people, Cruz had like really bad interpersonal relationships with other Republicans on Capitol Hill. Um, He's also like a very weak electability choice. And then you had um, was it Kasich? Who was kind of like running in a like, too moderate for most Republicans. You know, it was kind of odd. It was, odd. It was it,
0: Rubio, too, that, like, all, like the Republican intelligentsia put a lot of hope in him, and he ended up going, like, well further it, than you would expect without kinda, really winning anything.
1: Right. Whereas, like, you know, Haley, you know, she's, she's well behind, but just seems like somebody you could endorse. Uh, what's striking is, I think, how many Republicans um, rushed to endorse Trump the day before Iowa. Right. Right? It's not a rush— after Iowa, it's not a like okay. We wrap this up. It's you know, and and guys like Marco Rubio, who you know not only ran against Trump in twenty sixteen, but did some some tough hits uh, on Trump. And and Rubio is also someone who like disagrees with Trump's Russia policy, you know, or at least has articulated that disagreement over the years. But he really, they want to get on the bandwagon preemptively because they are you know they're playing the favor currying game. And I think that we all sort of get that. But it's also, you know, it's reflective of one of Trump's core uh, deficits as a human being and as a politician, which is that he's very selfish, you know? And like, you you can see- And vindictive. Right, but- but, but I I mean, mean, to to, to, to your your point- But I think selfish, you know, it's like Marco Rubio's belief is that Donald Trump does not hold particularly clearly to any political principles. And so the best way to get Trump to advance ideas that Marco Rubio thinks are correct is just to kiss up to him because he sees him as endlessly flexible in both good and bad ways, right? And so much of how other Republicans deal with Trump is driven by that, right? By their belief that if they, um, if they criticize him, that he will retaliate against them. Yes. But if they praise him, he will be pliable toward their, a, their, their kind of goals, which is fine. I mean, they may be right. I, I, I can't even say, but it's actually such a damning indictment of Trump, right? I mean, this is the big problem, fear that people have um, in any Republican system of government, right, is that actors in the political system will be purely selfish, Rather than motivated by principle, right, and we have all these famous parables in American politics, right. And th- there was a there was a popular Alexander Hamilton musical, right, about <laughs> about how Thomas Jefferson had political principles that Hamilton disagreed with, versus Aaron Burr, who was this purely corrupt, purely selfish mountbank figure, and. Ultimately, Hamilton thought it was better to be governed by a principled man who he had principled disagreements with. And all of Republicans have just like made the opposite calculus, right? That they're like, they're in with Aaron Burr and they keep coming up with different reasons why it's going to be fine and it's going to be fine. And well, you know, let him have his lawsuits. Nothing bad will happen. But then January 6th did happen. And it was like, well, uh, maybe he's bad, but like now he's back. And, you know, it's, it's inherently dangerous to have yeah. a person in a position of power who is not motivated by anything other than than selfishness
0: it's it's like it boils down to that the most generous case you can make against someone like marco rubio is that he's literally just fearful of what would happen to him professionally and maybe even like physically if he did anything like what like the Iowa governor did. She endorsed Ron DeSantis and like, not like in a Trump is awful. We need to get past Donald Trump way, but in the like, I prefer DeSantis. And if DeSantis loses, I'll happily support Donald Trump, but like, she's out now. Right. And like, probably can't really get back into Trump's good graces without some extraordinary level of groveling, right? There's a carrot and there's a stick. And the stick is, that if you if not even if you endorse someone else if you don't endorse fulsomely enough you are like a, a pariah and you you know contrast with a more normal politician like Joe Biden half of his administration is people who once worked for one of his primary opponents in twenty twenty I mean half like, seems like a
1: like a low estimate
0: <laughs> um. I. You know, I mean that's like that's there's a particular story with Elizabeth Warren having cultivated a whole generation or two yeah, yeah, yeah. of of like policy wonks prior even to having become a senator and Joe Biden kind of not really having done that. Um, but uh but really it was just like I want to create unity within my party so that we can have like good faith governing negotiations amongst ourselves um, so that I'm not constantly fighting these internal battles. And tr- Trump's answer to that riddle is I'm just going to scare people into just doing what I want. And if there happens to be an issue that I don't care about, then sure, I'll let them have their toys or whatever and, and whatever. If that, if that makes them happy, fine. But like on the things I care about, like enriching myself or toppling American democracy, like they need to be with me. And that's what we're seeing happen, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you, you absolutely see that. I mean, you do, though, I, I do think an important part of it, though, is that Trump is disinterested in so many spheres of public policy, right? Because he, he does, he gave a lot to the orthodox conservative movement, right? Like, they are not mistaken, in their belief that or, or th- there was a divergence, right? Like uh, some people like, like Bill Crystal, went like way off the reservation, right? And like wound up just like becoming a Democrat. And now we see what kind of trajectory Liz Cheney will be on in her life. But there's a whole big other group of people who, you know, they, they weren't for Trump in 2016, but they came around on him when he locked up the nomination. And the fact is, is like, they got a very conservative Supreme Court. They got Roe v. Wade overturned. They may get like, the whole delegation of authority to environmental regulators thrown out by the Supreme Court. They got the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's wings kind of clipped out of the Supreme Court.
0: NLRB um, is now on the chalking block. Right. A, NLRB- Elon Musk backed the lawsuit.
1: Right. Um, you know, they, they got a big tax cut. They got like lots of people in the political system like do care a lot, are very sincerely motivated by these kind of policy Concerns. Uh, Marco Rubio talked about how um, the Trump administration put tough sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela, and that's important to him. And, like, I don't know, you know, but like that did happen, right? Like, Trump did all this stuff for all kinds of conservative groups. He really put a stamp on the administration in terms of trade policy. Right? in like a unique way, which is something that he has always cared a lot about And then as we'll discuss later like he, he did a lot of corruption but you know he he sets a high bar for how much grovelling he demands people do to him but he is quite forgiving, not forgiving. He's quite um, amenable to the public policy ideas of the conservative movement, right? And and they've kind of, like, if you look at this Heritage Foundation Project 2025 stuff, which is supposed to, like, staff the Trump administration, they have framed it for him and for Politico and for, you know, credulous readers as, like, we are going to identify, like, true Trumpists, and we're going to staff the administration with real Trump loyalists. But if you go through their questionnaire and, like, see what they're asking about, they're not, like, particularly asking about your loyalty to like Donald Trump's weird ideas. They're asking about like your support for very low taxes, your support for belief that life begins at conception, your support for like total dismantling of business regulation. Like they're just trying to find people who are very, very right wing and put them into place in the administration because that's what Heritage has always done, right? And Trump asks a lot. He asks for total immunity from like criticism, right? For his personal misconduct. But in exchange, he he gives the right what they want, at least on a staffing level.
0: You know? Yeah, well, I think he I think he also doesn't quite know what he's sign, signing up for. I mean, maybe better now than he did back then, but like I'm not sure he recognized that the deal that he was making that probably won him the presidency with evangelicals and the right wing judicial movement was going to be that he became the face of what became the Dobbs decision of overturning Roe v. Wade. And if he had known, I don't know that he would have done anything differently. I just don't think he cares that much about the policy. And back in 2016, he might've thought, well, like criminalizing abortion in half the country, that's, that's going to like really blow back on me. I don't want to be identified with that and, and maybe made a different calculation. But I think what he's learned since then is that he can give them free reign policy-wise. They will do a bunch of reactionary and terribly unpopular things, and then he can tell the people who support those things, it's a miracle. I'd, like, I'm the only one who could have ever done this. And he'll tell the rest of the country, it's fine, it's a negotiation from here or whatever, right? Like, if if they pass... If, if they, you know, uh, implement some sort of rulemaking that results in... Um, you know a, a huge uh like environmental calamity somewhere in the country that you know he he thinks of as important he's not going to be like i'm sorry that was a result of our policies and we're going to rethink them he's going to say like right like you know whatever like that's someone else's fault and only i can clean it up and i think that what we've seen over 7 years is that like even though it sounds really stupid and everyone should be able to see through it it's not so stupid because I mean, in part because, like, journalists are very credulous about this kind of thing. Um, and um, and in, in part because, like, he's, like, this weird figure who many, many, many people, including people who don't like him, I think, like, still think of him as, like, in some sense, a uh, like, a practical person. He, because he doesn't have an ideology, he can be, you know, amenable to things that aren't well ideologically rigid and so he's not viewed as widely as i think he should be as just a pass through for the most hard right shit
1: yeah i mean you know an important thing right that i think drives a lot of um like trump-stalgia uh that, (laughs) that that clearly exists in the electorate is that not that much actually happened during the first three years of his administration right i mean like john mccain prevented um the Affordable Care Act, from getting repealed. Uh, The budget deficit went up a lot, but interest rates were still low. Um, The seeds of Dobbs were like, Trump is clearly responsible for that, but the Dobbs decision didn't occur, right? Mm -hmm. Like if that decision had been handed down during Trump's presidency, the backlash to Dobbs and the backlash to Trump's presidency would have been like one backlash, right? That would have like, Defined our culture and so on and so forth, but like that's just not how the the timing worked out. And not to say that like people can see the connection between the two things, but there was this phase step. You know what I mean? Like just just a just a time delay. And you have heard there are very low information voters who like are mad at Biden because of Dobbs, right? I mean, it just becomes a complicated situation. And then the the policymaking got so dominated by COVID. You know, where I think at first there was a really sharp reaction against Trump, but then that situation got more sort of complex over over time. And I, I think, I mean, this is a theme I, I think we'll return to, but like, I think that people, most voters underrate how right wing policymaking is going to be in 2025 if Republicans have a good evening. You know, I think that there is a lot of talk about Trump, like sort of broadly speaking. But then like anytime I try to raise like the subject of what kind of public policy decisions will a Donald Trump administration make in 2025, given the changed composition of the Republican Senate caucus, I get a lot of people being like, but you know, like that's not what this election is about, Matt. And like, okay, I mean, it's not, right? Like if I was to look at the movie. Of like 2024 and be like, what are the themes of this drama? Like it's true that tax policy is not what this election is, quote unquote about. Um, but like what the government does is make tax policy and they appoint regulators and they appoint judges. and like it's what's gonna happen, right? Like if Trump wins, um, woke leftists who feel snobby and superior, are not going to um, stop feeling that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it, it's just, if anything, they will be confirmed in their view that uh, there's a bunch of white trash morons who uh, don't know what they're doing and keep voting for yahoos. Uh, what's going to happen is that, you know, the looming expiration of TCJA is going to be addressed by people who are like, rich guys who hate taxes there's going to be explosion of the budget deficit you know blah 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 and i think it's important to talk about those things
0: i agree but i I mean just to where i sympathize with the people who come back at you because it's both important but like in the lead up to 2012 um the 2012 election you know Mitt romney and paul ryan were much more unapologetic about the agenda they were running on than trump is right trump hides the ball a lot um Trump may not even be certain what his agenda is because, as you say, it's going to be like laundered through the Heritage Foundation. Yeah, um, but I, re- I remember the feeling in 2012 of like Barack Obama could lose this election. He could lose it by like four or five percent. That would be uh, probably like Obamacare snuffed out in the crib before before its um, any of its like main provisions had rolled out it would have been like the work of a generation kind of flushed down the toilet. And I like had a like very serious sense of dread about that. But I also kind of understood it to be like, well, if that's what happens, it's going to be horrible. But then like, people will regroup and they will try again. And it might take 20 years or 30 years, um, or it might take four or eight years. But it's not like people are going to stop caring about healthcare. If Mitt Romney had said, yada, 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 phase out Medicare, repeal Obamacare, and also no more United States elections <laughs> after I win, I'd be like, well, we, we, it, it wouldn't be like, we need to save Obamacare. Like, yes, ancillarily, that's very important. But like, the reason it will sting so bad is the possibility that there will not be another bite at the apple ever. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I, I agree. I, I just think wh- when
1: I woke up, the morning after the 2016 election what occurred to me was that very little of my coverage or the coverage that I had helped like steer at Vox had focused on like like what in like concrete terms is like going to happen You know, we'd like, we'd like really covered this like ambient dread. Um, And I just feel like we now actually have so much more information about Trump because to an extent it was really uncertain. Like, I think we didn't, one could have predicted how Trump would govern based on things happening in 2016, but also there were a lot of known unknowns, right? Like, was it totally out of the question that Trump would come in having won um, and beaten the Republican establishment and assemble like a bipartisan group of um, outsiders from around the country, you know, top business minds and like govern like like a Teddy Roosevelt kind of like rogue figure. Like in retrospect, that sounds
0: absurd, but I uh, know I thought it was possible it, like as of, you know, uh, April 2016 or something like that. Right, I but it's like essay about it,
1: but it's like maybe right
0: Yeah, you just the
1: thing about the guy having already been president (laughs) before is we now know and and we know from reporting, like we know what his takeaway from his experience was. And his takeaway was that he needed to be like more orthodox, right? That he needed to get people who are more aggressive in their willingness to fire civil servants. Right. Like not that he needs to be more like let Trump be Trump, you know, like like listen to, his, deal own, with whatever listen to his own tune, you know, check in and see, <laughs> um, et cetera. And, and I I think we should we should we should probably we should probably um,
0: segue. Well, before we segue, I do want to ask you one more thing, um, because I mean, I, I get the sense that the Trump endorsers, the people who like jumped in before iowa or or jumped in last night when he won or, or tuesday monday night when he won um like they seem to be trying to put an end to the primary like lindsey graham who's been for trump for a long time is like it, it's clear to me that the primary's over right like um and i think that they just don't want they want to push nikki haley out reduce from one percent to zero percent the chance that she creates a, a real race one thing that I can't actually I don't know the answer to because I can't remember clearly enough and maybe it's just that there hasn't quite been an Iowa caucuses like this, but I was struck that like they called the, the, the networks called the caucuses for Trump within like 30 seconds of the first results from the first whatever trickling in right um, and you know it's a it's a caucus so it's an ongoing thing and so there are people caucusing throughout Iowa and already the network's like well there's no point because Trump already won Um And I don't know what I make of this. Like, is, is that how the networks have always done it? Just if there's a clear winner on it, like at a time when, when like the decision is still kind of being made in some sense that they pronounce the winner just because they know mathematically that it's true. Um, Or was it like more customary to just wait a bit? Because to me, it felt like whether by design or just by circumstance, they're kind of doing Trump's work for him, making so, this victory, okay, so, which was real and big, seem like, oh, well, this guy has unstoppable momentum. And that does him favors so
1: my, my down the understanding line in New Hampshire. Of the history of this, right, is that when like, network calling was new, um, they didn't really know. You know. They were just kind of like calling the races when, when they were done. But there was just tons of uncertainty. And then came the 84 election. Uh, 84 general election, right? That was such a landslide for Reagan that the networks called it for Reagan long before voting was done on the West Coast, right? Because they had the mentality, like, we are news organizations. Our job is to report things that are true. It was true long before polls closed in California that you could tell Ronald Reagan was going to win the election. But then there was a backlash to that. People said, look, like, You know, the the election is still happening, right? Like, the way American democracy works is that people vote in all kinds of down-ballot races. Like, we need to do it. We can't have the media proclaiming the presidential election over while people are still voting or still making the choice. Like, do I drive over to the polling place? So these, like, strong norms were put into place after that of, like, you don't call the race while the voting is still happening. But now we've had this, like, long series of super close elections.
0: Yeah. Which that's I, why I'm confused. Like, and I so I I I
1: think the close elections wound up eroding the norm, right? And so in lots of countries, like in France, you just can't report on exit polls mm-hmm. until the election is over. Uh, but we have the First Amendment in America, right? So, like, we we can't make a law, like— preventing Steve Kornacki from going on television and being like, hey, guys, it's over, right? The the networks would have to like decide that they have a moral obligation to not do this, which requires a lot of coordination. It requires a lot of forethought. Um, an Iowa caucus landslide is just not something that has and like the Iowa caucus is right. an unusual voting process, right? So you can't just say like, well, until the polls close, because normally what they do is they start reporting the quote unquote entrance polls as soon as the caucusing begins. And then there's like all these reporters out in the field and they're like, you know, here in Barstow, we've got, you know, one guy for Buttigieg and he is whatever. Um, Iowa landslide was just like not in the lived experience of any of the producers. Um and so I, I like I think they fucked this up. Long story short, like I think it's a it's a replay of '84. But it's like landslides. I think always wrong foot the network here
0: the losers, right. and and the and the people who are tr- like trying to salvage what they can of the popular vote or the, their share of the delegates or whatever because yeah like, I, I, the networks have already demoralized whoever in their you know I, in their corner would have voted for them. But
1: it's hard because it's like well suppose you. One network like refused to call it, but like that doesn't stop the other ones.
0: Right or like Decision Desk HQ is a Twitter right. account. Like if all the networks refused, like p- experts on Twitter would still be able to credibly call races, and well, people like us would follow them. And right and like, and like and like what do
1: you do? Like is John King supposed to stand up there and like pretend he's like unable to read Dave Os- Dave Wasserman's tweets? Right. Like, yeah. Because so, so much of the time I feel the opposite. Right. That it'll be that that like. Um, the networks are actually too conservative to use, like, that the the smartest election analysts, you know, use, like, models based on past election results. And they're able to call these, like, obscure special elections based on very partial returns. It's just, like, it, it's a tough one, I think, yeah. honestly. like um,
0: Call it a you, tie.
1: I mean, you know, I don't know, right? It's, like, it, 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 it's weird, but it does... Um, I, I, I do wish there was more like principles articulated, you know, as to like, yeah. what, what are we doing here?
0: Maybe maybe there, maybe there can be a, a blogger ethics panel. I, I, did not, right. <laughs>
1: I did not call Iowa until all voting was complete, you know?
0: Likewise. Okay. All right. If you're listening, um, you've reached the end of the free portion of this podcast. Um, if you've enjoyed it thus far and want to hear more, uh, including all of our past episodes and all of our episodes to come and the, the serious grilling I'm about to get from Matt please visit politics.fm and subscribe.